Amen, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you so much for the promise that we have in you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I invite you to get your Bibles out this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. We'll get through this this morning. I put most of the verses, I did something different, up on the screen, either that written out or referenced to it, so you can write them down. I will send out the sermons, the last three this week. Um, but let's look at verses 29 through 31. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, obviously, we've looked through last week, verse 29, but we are familiar with this entire section. This is a parallel passage from last week, from Luke. I put it up there for us. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves. And I said that because the disintegration of the universe, the alteration of gravity, um, all of that is happening. Men fainting from fear in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's interesting, whenever, and I'm just going to be completely honest with you, I have a lot of ideas when I'm writing a sermon. And every time, it without fail, I have this idea of how to present this text, or I get this insight into the text. And I think it's something new. As I continue studying, I realized someone else already <laughs> had this idea, all right? And that's my whole point, is that there is nothing new under the sun, okay? And this is why it says this verse right here, and he's a smart man, Solomon, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Now, this actually makes me feel good about myself, because guess what? What I just read to you in Matthew and in Luke and what Jesus said, our Lord's own description of his coming, it's nothing new, even to him. It's been said before. Okay? We're going to spend about 10, 15 minutes looking at that. The Old Testament is littered with references to the events surrounding the second coming. And when you understand some of these, it gives you even more insight into the second coming of Jesus Christ. Of course, it's not called the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's called the day of the Lord. Okay? In the day here, meaning a period of time, not a 24-hour day. And I want to be up front as I, from the very beginning that what we're going to read from the Bible, okay, it's fairly graphic. 
Okay, so it's not necessarily easy to, to read. So turn to Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 16. Okay? Isaiah 13, verses 6 through 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. And I think we kind of understand why he would say that from what we've talked about so far. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. So God is coming to destroy. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor, they will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And look what it says. It's cruel, with fury and burning anger. To make the land, now the word land there means earth, to make the earth a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. Now, that sounds an awful lot like Matthew 24 and Luke 21, doesn't it? People freaking out, men expiring, dying, dismay, all of that, melting from fear. Now look at verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. In other words, to sum this section up, there's going to be a worldwide slaughter. As God judges the ungodly, and mankind will be rarer than gold, than the wedges of Ophir gold. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. God is angry. And, I will, and it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, they will each turn to his own people, and each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through, Anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. The houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. I think this is graphic. So the universe will tremble because it's disintegrating. The earth is shaken probably by a great earthquake at his coming. Man is going to be chased like deer, erratically running as when hunted. It will be like undomesticated sheep without a shepherd. It will be like men fleeing to their own land, and everyone that is found that hasn't already died will be thrust through, and everyone joined to him will fall by the sword. In other words, there is no mercy. No one is spared. Children will be dashed to pieces before the eyes of parents. Houses will be ransacked. Wives will be violated. This is the judgment of God on the unrepentant sinner. 
There's another passage found in Isaiah. Go up to chapter 34, verses 1 through 4 and verse 6 and verse 8. So as I give you these Old Testament references, you're going to understand why it is a great and awesome day of the Lord, but also why people are reacting the way that they are. In advance, we know that nations will be in dismay. People are falling from fear, dying of heart attacks, and so on. It's just an awful time. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear in the word and all that springs from it. So we're talking worldwide judgment. Verse 2, for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. Verse 3, so their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. Now what do you think Isaiah is referring to here? What's this a reference to? You want to guess? It's the armies of the nations that have gathered to destroy the people of God in Jerusalem at the Battle of Armageddon. Okay, that will happen when he comes again. They're going to be slaughtered by the Lord. Then Isaiah describes the disintegration of the universe at the second coming of Jesus Christ, verse 4. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their host will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. That sounds familiar, right? The host meaning stars and so on. They're going to fall from the sky. The point being is that this is where our Lord and, and John, the Apostle John, drew their imagery. It came from the Old Testament. But, but there is more. Look at verse 6. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now let me just help you out here with a little visual so you can never take your eyes off that and look at this map here. You, put, you can't see, it's too small, I can barely read it, even with my glasses. Down here is Edom, if you can see that. I can't make it any bigger for you. Over here is Basra, okay? This is the Salt Sea, is that the Dead Sea, right? The Salt Sea? Yeah. yeah. You go up to here, which is what I want you to see. This is um, a mountain range, and this is Megiddo, which of course is... The Valley of Megiddo, which is where the Battle of Armageddon takes place, okay? But I'll correct you in a moment here. You go all the way up here, and this is, I think, modern Sidonians. This is modern-day Lebanon. But, but, but basically, from here to here is an important thing to know. Here's why. The reason Basra is mentioned right there in the bottom, it's the southernmost place where the Battle of Armageddon is going to occur, in Edom. See that? Now, how do we know this? Well, Revelation 14 speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Battle of Armageddon using the imagery of a wine press. Look at this. And the wine press was trodden outside the city. Now, what city are we talking about? It's Jerusalem. Remember, yeah, right here. Okay. So, right around here, not in the city, but notice it's outside the city. This is the judgment of God. And blood came 
from, out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles. Now that's what? How many feet is that? Four feet or whatever? For a distance of what? 200 miles. So if you go from here, Basra, all the way up past Megiddo up to here, that's roughly 200 miles. That is the depth of the destruction. I want to give you a visual to see that. That will happen at the Battle of Armageddon. Okay? And how, if it's literally true, how much blood will be shed? Yeah. Yes. I don't know how much blood is in a human body. I can't, it's like some incredible amount. How many gallons it is. But anyway, it's talking about a massive amount of blood. So it's a battle of battles. Okay? I just wanted you to see that. Again, if you measure 200 miles north, starting from Basra, it takes you just past Armageddon, which I told you, into Lebanon. This is the range of that final great destruction in the Battle of Armageddon. And again, the point is the Bible is very accurate in describing what verse 8 calls a day of vengeance, okay, where God pays back man for his sin. There it is. The Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Why so much blood? Why so much slaughter? God is angry. His wrath is falling upon sinners. It's been built up. It's pent up frustration because what's holding it back right now? His mercy, his love, his grace. That time is now over. And now, again, I've told you, the wrath of God is like the ocean. And his, his love and mercy is like a rock. And what happens eventually over time, the ocean keeps pounding away at the rock. It eventually goes away, and then the wrath is going to be unleashed. And that's what we're seeing here. Okay? The prophet Joel, another prophet, writes of a swarm of locusts so numerous, you can turn there if you want, Joel 2, 1 through 10, 1 through 2 and 10 through 11. He writes of a swarm of locusts so numerous that it blots out the sun the moon and the stars. This swarm of locusts is so powerful and devastating that everything left in its wake is desolate. It's as if these locusts come and there's these lush green fields and then after the locusts pass through, it's just desolate and bare. And Prophet Joel writes of this locust shaking the heavens. The heavens tremble and the earth shudders. He compares this swarm of locusts, now watch this, to the day of the Lord. When Jesus his armies, which, who are his armies? All the believers that have died and are with him, and they're coming back riding what? And what color are the horses? And they're dressed in white, okay? They accompany him in his glorious return. And just the armies itself are compared to this swarm of locusts that are making the nation and the earth tremble, the heavens shake. And the heavens and earth trembles before this unprecedented army. Now look at verses 1 and 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. That sounds familiar, right? Now we know why it's dark, right? A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there's a great and mighty people there have never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it was, after it to the years of many generations. Verse 10. 
Before them, meaning the armies of the Lord, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and this makes sense now, right? And who can endure it? I mean, this day is so great and awesome that man simply cannot endure it. it. Meaning, the slaughter is so devastating that, of course, unless it, God is restrained, no one survives. And, of course, it's restrained, it's shortened, the day is shortened, as we talked about last week, for who? The sake of the elect. Now, this echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, what I just, just mentioned. And then Joel writes in verses 30 and 31, I think I put them up there, this should sound familiar, by the way. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, does that look familiar to you? Do you know where that was quoted other than Joel? By Peter, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Okay? But I want you to see that Joe, Joel sees this as an illustration of the ultimate shaking of the heavens and the earth, and the ultimate holocaust of divine judgment on the great and awesome day of the Lord. The prophet Haggai write, wrote this. I think I put this up there. It describes the end of the world with the same terms, a shaking. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. The seas also in the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. My point being in this little brief section here is that the imagery that Jesus used, it's nothing new. It's always been there. It's consistent with what the prophets before him spoke. Now, go back to Matthew 24, okay? And let's talk about and finish up our discussion on the signs, or the sign. You may recall as you're turning there that God has dimmed the lights, much like we do when we watch a movie. He dims the lights. And then the movie begins. Verse 29 of Matthew 24. But immediately after tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. That's the dimming of the lights. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What appears next is the sign of the Son of Man. Verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now the question is this. Well, what is the sign? Right? What is the sign? Anyone want to take a guess what the early church fathers thought the sign was? Again, it's a darkened, blackened background and then the light is turned on, obviously. What is the sign? What do you think they thought it was? They thought it was a blazing cross. It would fill the black heavens. But the text says the sign is the sign of the Son of Man. So in the midst of this blackness, I mean, it is black, folks. It is dark. There will appear in blazing, infinite, unveiled glory the Son of Man. 
And what that is referring to is the Shekinah glory. Now, I'll explain to you what that is. What is the Shekinah glory? Well, guess what? Adam and Eve had a glimpse of it in the garden when they did what? They walked and talked with God in the cool of the day, in the presence of God. The people of Israel had a glimpse of the glory when it dwelt between the wings of the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple. They saw it in where? In the wilderness, in as a pillar of cloud that led them by day, and the fire that led them by night. Now the disciples saw a glimpse of it as well, here in Matthew 17, 1 through 2. Look at it, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. What happened? His face shone like the sun, his garments became as white as light. So in this black background, no sun, no moon, no stars, okay, all of a sudden, Jesus appears. And his face is like what? It's like the sun, okay? His garments are white, okay? White as light. And what Jesus did in Matthew 17 here is he simply pulled aside the veil of his flesh, and they beheld his glory. And that's a taste of what the second coming Shekinah will be like. Uh, the Roman soldiers caught a glimpse of the Shekinah glory. This makes perfect sense when I explain this to you in a moment. When they attempted to arrest Jesus, remember this? So Jesus, knowing that all things were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. Jesus also who was betraying him was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am he, look what happens. They drew back and fell to the ground. What does that mean? Why did they fall to the ground when he simply said, I am he? He revealed himself to who he was. We think he probably pulled back a portion of his eye, theologians believe, and he revealed the Shekinah glory. And what was the response to these Roman soldiers? They fell to the ground. Does that sound familiar when he comes again? What, what are happening to men all across the world? They're falling to the ground in fear and dismay. They're dying, gripped with fear, Okay. He revealed his true nature to these soldiers. They were overwhelmed with fear to the point of falling on the ground. They had no more strength left within them. Now, Revelation 6 records this response to the Shekinah glory. You can sit there and go there. You just listen to me. This is the, the six seals broken, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars, the sky, fell to the earth. So what's this six seal referring to? His appearance the second coming. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll. Does it sound like Isaiah? When it was rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Here's the reaction. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. Those that had strength left in them hid themselves. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and away from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, nobody can stand in the presence of the Shekinah glory when it's revealed 
it was obviously restrained because the Peter, James, and John could stand in his presence. But a, a, a different portion of it was revealed, a more powerful portion to those soldiers because they just fell dead. I mean, they were done. Life was out of them. Now look at Matthew. Go back to Matthew 24, verse 30. Look what he says at the end of verse 30. He will come not just with glory, it says, but with great glory. Great glory. In other words, it's a glory like the world has never seen. And this is and how does the world respond to that great glory? They are terrified. Okay? So this is beyond the transfiguration. Okay? Now, the world will see him coming how? On clouds. Now, why clouds? Well, if you turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, yeah, you can just read, listen to this. And after he had said these things, this is Jesus, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into his sky? These are obviously angels, and these angels, have, by the way, they're Stories of angels that appear before Daniel, for example, and what happens to Daniel and the people that are around him. They fall almost dead. So these are angels, but they're appearing as men, much like they did with Lot. Okay, and so their power, their glory is revealed. It's veiled. And so they're saying to him, watch this, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Well, he was taken up in what? Cloud, and he's going to return in a cloud. He went up in clouds, he'll return in clouds. So at second coming, this scene is indescribable. The world is in panic. People everywhere are dying of sheer terror, and only the Lord holds things together enough so that they can see the rest of these events. And the world is living in darkness because Jesus has dimmed the lights. The sun is darkened. The moon is not given its light. Now, Zechariah also tells us this. Isaiah, uh, I think it was chapter 6 or 13.10 writes this as well, but Zechariah 14.6 says this. In that day there will be no light. The what? Luminaries, which are what? Stars. Will dwindle. The stars that are falling from the sky, they're not longer giving light. So against this completely darkened backdrop, the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man appears, and their great light appears in the sky, the unveiled Shekinah glory. Now, here's the key. How bright is it? How bright is it? Well, in the New Jerusalem described in Revelation, we read this. In the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. In fact, the new earth has no need of a sun because, Revelation 22, 5, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So that is one bright LED light, is it not? 
least Angela got my joke. She's laughing at least. The eternal city of Jerusalem, the eternal new heavens, and the eternal earth, the forever filled with his glorious light. So yes, when he returns, it is so bright that what happens? Then you understand this. This makes sense now, right? Every eye will see him. If I could do this to give you an illustration, if this was, this was a completely enclosed room and I could turn off all the lights and it would be completely black, you couldn't see anything. If I turned on a flashlight, you could see that light, right? That's what it's going to be like, completely black. All of a sudden, there is this bright light. And every eye will see. And I'm assuming because it's filling everything, it goes around the entire dying planet and everybody will see. So I want to remind you again what Isaiah, who we quoted in Joel and Haggai and Zechariah and John, all describe the same events. We find a consistent imagery presented in the Bible. Now watch this. You've heard me say this a number of times. That to describe these events is indescribable. Words fail. I don't know how, with what limited vocabulary I have and the command of the vocabulary that I do have, how do I describe these events? It's just so hard to describe them. Well, let me tell you why now. Zechariah wrote this in 14.7, speaking of this day, it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Now, Zechariah is saying that nobody could ever understand, much less describe this day, and that makes me feel good about myself, that I'm not alone in this. There is no scientific explanation of the day of the Lord, it is one day known only to him. It is one day that only the Lord understands and can explain. Well, why? Because, look it, it's not what? Day, and it's not night. And it's not day, and it's not night, because there aren't any heavenly bodies. There's no sun or moon or stars. Don't think of evening as a day. It's a what? A period of time. So for a period of time, there's no light. There's no sun or moon or stars. So when does the day begin? When does night begin? It's all the same. This is why Jeremiah 37 says this. Alas, for the day is great. You see, again, day, a period of time, there's absolutely nothing like it. And that also means then it makes sense. We don't know the day or hour he will return, Right? Because we're no longer be able to count days. Because why? There's no light. Does that make sense now? So it's an utterly unique day. And Zechariah reminds us that at the evening time, which is referenced probably for the end of that period, that there will be light. The light of the unveiled Shekinah glory. In the eyes of every nation will see him coming, and the world's reaction to Jesus' second coming is immediate. They go into mourning. Look at Matthew 24, 30. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. You see that? That's the Gentiles. Okay? If you want to separate Jew and Gentile, believers, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And those who pierced him see his return. You see that? That's a reference to the Jews. They also will mourn. 
Zechariah writes this of the day, Lord. I put that up there. Look at this. O proud on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Now, the, the Jews that are alive when he is, comes again are going to mourn. The Gentiles did not put to death, in a sense, or not held responsible for the death of our Lord. Who is? It is the Jews. They rejected him, right? And so the Jews that are alive when he comes again, some of them are going to mourn. Okay? They're going to mourn. Why do they mourn? Well, the world mourns because, I've been over this, they know the judgment is coming, right? Remember Revelation 6, 15 to 17? I think I put this up there. Again, there's when they say they hide in, in the mountains and the caves. They want the rocks to fall on them. They're full of fear. This is why the world is mourning. It's judgment, and they know it, okay? But the Jews are also mourning because they realize they have pierced who? Their Messiah, Jesus. And they will finally believe in him. And thus, all Israel will be saved. And at his return, what are they going to say? We even know what they're going to say. Remember this? He said, remember when he said this? His triumphal entry, and they didn't receive him as their king. And he says, I say to you, I, I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, and you wouldn't come to me. So he says this. From now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when are they going to see him again? At his second coming, in all his glory, and they're going to mourn because they're going to realize all those years of stubborn repentance, we were wrong, and we killed our Messiah. And in that moment, some are going to believe. Okay? Some are going to believe. And finally, verse 31 of Matthew 24. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one to the sky to the other. And this is good news. This is good news. In the midst of all that mourning, in the midst of all of the hiding and all the fear, the panic, the terror, everything, God will send his angels, and a, a trumpet is blown. And that's significant because a trumpet signifies the calling of an assembly. It's a gathering of the elect from all over the world who have been enduring the tribulation. No one is left out, as indicated by the phrase, from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And you know what happens to those people? They're alive during this time. They're ushered into his kingdom. They are gathered for glory. Because what is our destiny? It's glorification. And folks, this should be our focus. This should be our focus. In 1952, a young Florence Chadwick, recognize that name, anybody? 
stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim to the English Channel both ways, but the weather was foggy and chilly, and she could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam, this is incredible, for 15 hours straight. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than a half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said this, and this is what I want you guys to remember from this sermon. Uh, If anything, remember this. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And really, that's what we're talking about. We want to be ready, right? Because that's what he's going to say next. Be ready. Because in chapter 25, it's about a judgment that comes right after his coming. But there's so much more that happens that we'll get into when he physically touches the earth and everything. Because the nations have been gathered. They're trying to destroy Jerusalem. They're not successful at it. This bright light's going to appear. I mean, just all of this, okay? And when he comes again, you better be ready. Well, how can we be ready? Keep your eyes on the shore. Focus not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because you were made for heaven, right? See how smart I am? The Heaven Sunday School class in this sermon series? It was a joke. Is this too serious for you guys or not? Because it's like, okay, I get a little levity here. So, very good? All right. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's close in prayer. We'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word to us. It is amazing the detail that you provide, and I've only really scratched the surface of all that is there. We thank you for your consistency, that you are immutable, you're never changing. It is indeed a, a great and awesome day, that it, and that the courage that we have, because we're not appointed to this wrath that has fallen upon an unbelieving, dying world. So we thank you for that. And I pray that we would do our utmost to be prepared for when you do come again. And Lord, if you tarry and we die, everybody in this room is dead. And you still haven't come. When you come, what a great and awesome and quite frankly, terrifying time that will be. But we thank you that you've told us everything in advance. And so we can be prepared. And so keep that eternal perspective before our eyes, moment by moment. And all God's people said, amen. Enjoy your day. God bless you. And I'll see you next week.